Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time to redefine reality. This is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Welcome to another edition of Strange Planet Plus for premium subscribers. And on this edition, we're going to talk about America's Stonehenge. That's right. America has its own Stonehenge, not exactly the same as uh, the famous Stonehenge in England, but it has its own uh, history and its own unique aspects that are quite fascinating. And uh, here to discuss is the president of America's Stonehenge, Dennis Stone, who graduated from Daniel Webster College back in 1977 with a degree in aviation management. And he was a full-time commercial pilot for over 35 years before his retirement in 2016 and America Stonehenge was opened to the public way back in 1958 by Dennis's father, Robert Stone. Dennis has been involved with America Stonehenge for most of his life and has always had a fascination with archaeology and archaeoastronomy. Uh, Since retiring, Dennis has found many serpentine walls and spirit windows throughout the site, among other new discoveries. He's taken numerous courses and traveled extensively to ancient sites, both in the U.S. and internationally. And his family includes his wife, Pat, his sons, Kelsey, and his daughter-in-law, Catherine. His hobbies include traveling, boating, and classic cars. I love classic cars. Dennis Stone, welcome back to the program. How are you? Oh, I'm doing good, Richard. Thank you so much for having me on again. My pleasure. Uh, so just, uh, just describe what America Stonehenge looks like. Yeah, it's a little difficult to describe, but uh, it's what we believe is a ceremonial site. Uh, it's constructed of large stones. It sits on a hill about 40 miles north of Boston, about 20 miles from the coast uh, in southern New Hampshire in a town of North Salem. Um, the, uh, about 106 acres uh, is the uh, property, and it's a hill about 360 feet above sea level. So it's a site with all these stone chambers. It has courtyard, plaza. Uh, it has these chambers that you can actually walk into and they're dry stone construction. In other words, they were used, they were actually constructed without the use of cement and it have very large stone slabs that create the roofs. And these, um, most of those chambers you can stand up in, there's a couple that are shorter chambers. And uh, we have an astronomical calendar too that surrounds about one acre of these stone structures with the plaza courtyards and other features. And around that are all these monoliths and they're out about five or 600 feet in distance from the center of the site. And they're aligned with the sun, the moon and stars. And we believe today we have about 57 different astronomical alignments 
And that work began back in 1965, and it continues today. Um, outside on the um, outskirts of the property are, as you mentioned, some serpent walls. We have about 14 serpent walls, we believe. Um, and they run anywhere from about 27 feet up to 2,550 feet. Um, and they come in straight, linear. They're actually rectilinear in shape. And they can be S-shaped. And some actually loop around. And one of them actually comes around and it looks like it bites its tail, possible Ouroboros. And it's an ancient Egyptian, Greek, and other cultures also did the same thing, you know, uh, with jewelry and pottery and artwork where the serpent's biting its tail. And it's like, a symbol for eternity or the circle of life. And our, one of our biggest serpent walls actually starts at a chamber called the Watch House. And it's a fascinating chamber. It has a lot of different features, including an illumination inside of it of a quartzite stone. And we can talk about that too. That's only known about in the last two years. But the serpent wall itself, we kind of recognized it about five years ago. And it goes around counterclockwise. It touches every astronomical foresight when you have an alignment with the sun, moon, and stars, you actually need two points. You need a foresight and a backsight, kind of like a gun sight. And then you look at your object and you're looking at a sun or moon rising or setting. So that wall actually undulates. It goes up and down behind its head. It goes around counterclockwise 2,550 feet. We have a GPS it and it comes right in front of its mouth. And then it does a 90 degree twist for the end of the tail and a pointed tail. And I think I sent with you a LIDAR image of that particular uh, stone feature. <clears throat> and again, it's, it could be the Ouroboros. And um, it, it's, it's amazing structure. Some of them, again, are straight. Some are uh, rectilinear with the head 90 degrees or the tail 90 degrees. And others are S-shaped. And again, we're finding them all the way out to the West Coast, out to uh, Weed, California, right near Mount Shasta. And they're in Colorado, Alabama. All of New England, Pennsylvania, and New York have these, these serpent walls. And until about five and a half to six years ago, we didn't know anything about these. It's been suggested that perhaps the constellation Draco inspired uh, these walls as above, so below, they say. Because Draco kind of looks like a serpent or a snake and in the Northern Hemisphere anyway. Right. And uh, this might be inspirational. And up in um, Ontario, Canada, there's a serpent wall, too. So they're not just in the United States. They go right into Canada. Okay, so and I think more you, research will have to be done on these walls to find out if there's any connection between them, the uh, time they were built. And actually, is that what we're looking at, a serpent, you know? Right. So <clears> when your father, uh, your father opened the uh, site to the public in 1958, prior to that, when did he realize what, he, what, he, what you had on the property? I mean, did it require any excavating or did you, did he... I mean, I don't know the history of the property. How long has it been in the family? And then when did he figure out that you had this incredible artifact on your on your property? Well, that's a great question. Yeah, my dad actually was in the Coast Guard up in Labrador back in the early 50s, right near where the Vikings landed. And that was something he was always interested in, basically in history, the Vikings, Native Americans, and other ancient cultures. And he was there about six years or seven years before they actually found Lanzo Meadow, if they had found it when he was up there, he would have gone over and seen it for sure. Uh, he worked at AT&T for 30 years. And on a Friday night back in 1955, he was just listening to the radio. One of the biggest stations in New England, it's right out of Boston, uh, was WBZ. And he actually listened to it up in Canada on the skip wave at night to catch up with the latest news way before the internet and computers and all that. It's kind of how he stayed in touch with home by listening to the radio up there in the evening. 
But on a Friday night up in Derry, New Hampshire, about seven miles from where the site is located in North Salem, he was just listening to the radio, just like we're doing right now, and the subject was all about these stone ruins. And some people referred to them as uh, Paddy's Caves back in those days. And if they had other names for the site, it was not open to the public. Research had been going on since 1937, excavations and cleaning and photographing and diagramming. But my dad never had heard of this place. And the name of the show is Yankee Yons. And Yankee Yons, the host was Alton Hall Blackington. He was from Maine originally. And he was a pretty well-known New England uh, radio host. And this evening he had been talking about the site and just kind of blew my dad away, only seven or eight miles from where he lived. Never heard of the place, you know, just fascinated him. Uh, coincidentally, he's at a barber shop a couple of days later, just waiting to have his hair cut, looking at magazines on a uh, table and he picked it up and he's looking at it and it's a magazine called New Hampshire Profile, 1953. And it had been sitting there for three years and he was looking through it. He actually sees photographs of what this place looks like that they heard on the radio and uh, a whole story about it. And then it, again, it was just amazing to him. He couldn't believe it. And the coincidence that he saw this magazine right after the radio show, he asked a barber if he could keep the magazine. He goes, well, how old is it? And he goes, my dad's in 1952. It's been sitting here for three years. So barber said, go ahead and take it. And that weekend at my aunt and uncle's, my mom's sister and her brother-in-law up in Derry, the same town, uh, about 10 people playing cards, you know, having a nice Saturday evening. And my dad took the magazine out, passed it around. Nobody knew what it was until it got to my aunt and uncle and they looked at it and said, wait a minute, we used to go there back in the 1930s. So my dad's next question is, can you find a place? But back then it was not open to the public. As I mentioned, there's some research going on, but it was not a place that the public could really visit. People went up there all the time that knew about it. There were a couple lakes with a lot of um, summer campers. The kids would come up and they would play up on the place, including we believe Alan Shepard, the first astronaut. Mm. The Shepard camp was just down the, about a mile as a crow flies from the uh, hill. So the kids from all over the place played up there. My aunt and uncle rode their bikes down while dating. And uh, that Sunday morning, uh, the next day, my aunt and uncle, my dad, my mom drove around looking for this place. And they had a hard time finding it until my young uncle recognized an old uh, dirt road. And they said, I think this could be the place. There were no signs. There was no visitor center. There was nothing. <laughs> so they parked the car by, by the road and they walked up this road, taking a chance that this is where the place is located about a half a mile up the hill. And then uh, they saw the site and, uh, you know, and then my dad was just, you know, totally again, just amazed by the whole thing, climbed underneath the chain link fence. It was all locked up. So they kind of trespassed and he was in by himself with the other three standing outside waiting for him. And when he finally came out after quite a while, they said, what do you think? He goes, amazing. He goes, I'd love to get involved with the research study of this place. Maybe we could open it up to the public. And he kept going on. And my mom finally said, you got rocks in your head, you know? But uh, literally, he <laughs> yeah, he's he's got rocks <laughs> on his brain. Yeah, he wants he, <laughs> he did. And, you know, and then the next three years, he worked on opening it up to the public. He met the owner, Malcolm Pearson, um, and Malcolm Pearson actually inherited the site from a gentleman named William Goodwin back in 1950. William Goodwin was from Hartford and uh, Goodwin had quite a biography. You know, he wrote four different books. He was interested in history. He was an insurance millionaire. He lived in Seattle, Washington for a while, working in the insurance company, went to San Francisco. And then his family, who actually were involved with the insurance company, transferred him to Columbus, Ohio, just before the big earthquake in San Francisco. And then he spent about 15 years in Ohio. On his days off, he would go around mapping some of the ancient mounds. They're, they estimate maybe 10,000 ancient mounds in Ohio. Originally, a lot of them are gone today. 
But uh, like the Newark Mounds, the Chillicothe Mounds, uh, Miamisburg, all these amazing structures built by ancient man, he would actually go out for 15 years on his days off and start mapping them for the highway department. And that was back well over 100 years ago, probably 120 years ago. He did that for about 15 years. Finally, he got back to his hometown of Hartford, Connecticut. And his uh, first cousin was J.P. Morgan, actually. So they're oh, part wow. of the Morgan family. So pretty well known, pretty prominent. But his love was the past. He lived in Jamaica. He wrote about Columbus. Okay. But did your, did your family buy this property at some point? Yeah. So, um, you know, Malcolm, in, in, you know, inherited. And then he did research. He actually brought in more investigators during the 50s, the Early Sites Foundation. And that's when my dad first saw it. So they were doing some archaeology up on the site. They already were well aware that the site wasn't built by farmers. You know, it wasn't something fairly new. Um, so my dad actually uh, bought uh, land down by the road and he put in a driveway, a parking lot, the building, septic system. But he did not own the site. He actually leased the site from 1958 when we first opened all the way up to 1965. And then eventually Malcolm and my dad worked it out and my dad bought it from Malcolm. Um, it could have gone the other way. Malcolm might have wanted to sell it to somebody else. And my dad would have been sitting on a parking lot, a visitor center, a well and a septic system with nothing to show, you know. So it was kind of right. a risk for my dad. Yeah. But, but Malcolm was a great guy. He just died about 10 years ago at 99 years old. And one of the structures that was on his family's place over 100 years ago is called the Upton Chamber. It looks like a passage grave in Europe, but it's in Upton, Massachusetts. It's now part of a town park. And his dad and mom bought it about 100 years ago. And the guy that sold it said, Malcolm, there's a cellar hole out back. And when Malcolm saw it, it's not a cellar hole. It looked like an igloo, all made out of stone or like a passage grave that we've seen over in Europe. And that's where Malcolm got first involved with it. And then uh, eventually somehow he got in contact with Goodwin and then Goodwin saw that a site in Hoppington, Massachusetts, where the Boston Marathon starts, another site in Acton, Massachusetts. And then Goodwin was brought up to our site. And he was just, again, like my dad, he was blown away in 1936. He purchased 20 acres in 1937 and he hired a crew to start cleaning excavating. They put up a chain link fence. It's still there today, 84 years later. Wow. So and, uh, how old is this? You know, and that's how it began. So my, my dad was well aware that this ancient site was there before he got involved with it. So, so the <clears throat> in terms of uh, the dating of the site, do you, uh, carbon dating or or what dating techniques and how old is it? Yeah, we think the site's four thousand years years old. Uh, that's when it was constructed. However, we think it was a layering of cultures, so it may have had may have started and then it kind of evolved over time. But the carbon datings were done from 1967 all the way up to 1995. There were 12 of them taken. One, uh, one carbon dating didn't work because it wasn't enough mass to test. It was done by Geochrome Laboratories in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, they did nine of the carbon datings in Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, pretty famous uh, institute down in Massachusetts, did three of our datings for us. And actually, the University of Washington, where Goodwin was actually involved with, <laughs> uh, did the calibration on those dates. But the main site is about one acre, and then that's surrounded by all the astronomical alignments and then thousands and thousands of feet of walls, including the serpentine walls and quarry sites all over the hilltop. The hilltop just loaded with what we think is the original builders were actually out there quarrying. They're building walls, serpentine walls, and there's a couple chambers out there too, structures, stone structures. Um, so in the main site, one acre, the oldest date in there is 4,000 years old, and that was 1971. It was uh, the north wall of a chamber in ruins. Um, that structure is interesting because we got a couple of different inscriptions from there, three different ones. 
And we also got three carbon datings from the north wall of that chamber. Today, the roof is about 7,000 pounds slab. It's typical of the roof slabs. They, they weigh many, you know, multiple tons. Big, big slabs that were quarried off the bedrock and then used as a roof slab has fallen into the chamber at some time in the past. We don't know when, but the north wall on the outside in 67, we've got a piece of pine root growing through the wall. And that dated to uh, 1690 AD. And that put it back before the colonial period because some people suggested the Patty family, as I mentioned the name, maybe they were shoemakers actually, five generations of shoemakers may have constructed the whole site as some sort of odd farm. Because when you look at it, it doesn't look like a farm. I lived on the farm up in Vermont during my first flying career for three years. It doesn't look like a farm at all or a shoe shop because there are shoemakers and they did some farming. 1969, they went down further below that piece of root. We got all the records of the root, pictures of the root coming out of the wall. You don't build a chamber around the tree. The tree grows through the structure, you know. And in the 1930s, the stump was still visible in the early photographs because Malcolm was a professional photographer. So he recorded everything before Goodwin right. touched it. And during the whole process, we get criticism. Well, we don't know what it looked like before Goodwin. We have four pictures from 1920, one picture from 1900. And we have photographs in 1935, a year before Goodwin ever got involved from the Boston Globe and the Havel Gazette newspapers. And you can see the site in the pictures, you know? So that's something that sometimes you'll hear some criticism. Well, we don't know what Goodwin did. We don't know how much he rebuilt. Well, yes, we do, you know? We how have, much of it is underground? Um, well, the chambers are kind of subterranean, but they were actually built on bedrock. And then the soil kind of goes over the chambers and over the roofs. In the Oracle chamber, we just did some optically stimulated luminescence testing. It's kind of a new dating method. We did the carbon datings, as I mentioned, up to 1995. And two years ago, they came in from um, University of Washington, again, Dr. Feathers. And we had two Brookhaven National Laboratory people there, a couple state archaeologists. We had 25 people come down, and they took four cores. Uh, they took one from the roof of the Oracle chamber, and that soil was 24 inches deep on the roof. Uh, we were quite surprised about that. We thought it would be five or six inches on top. And um, so there's a layering of soil over these structures, but some of it's accumulated. They say in New England, it's about an inch of soil that's created by windblown particles and vegetation decay about every 125 years. But you have erosion going on, too, on top of a hill, you know, so it's a very, it can be slower than that accumulation rate. So, yeah, there's a lot of chambers on the ground, but I think when they built them, they just built them on the ground. And then they might have backfilled a little bit. And then very slowly over time, they slowly get buried by debris, you know, and then that rots on top of the chamber. In the Oracle chamber case, it goes up to 24 inches. And so when we prepared for that optically stimulated luminescence testing, I went up with a probe and I had to locate uh, certain areas that might be candidates for testing. And the Oracle chamber roof was a good one, you know. And I thought, oh, yeah, five inches deep. And they needed a certain depth. They need they like to get like a foot or more. And it went down 24 inches. I had this T-rod and I shoved it into the ground. Then I marked it with a flag because that hole is now contaminated. But optically stimulated luminescence, I think, came out in the 80s. And they're really using it in the last 10 years. Geologists use it. Archaeologists use it. Brookhaven National Laboratory, uh, the USGS in Denver is doing it. And the University of Washington, although Dr. Feathers is going to be retiring. He did 44 samples from here to Virginia on other stone structures that might be related to our site. Um, a separate test in 2018, two years earlier, on a uh, terracing down in Pennsylvania, Owsley Hill Chamber. I never heard of it before. Um, and I can't think what county, it might be Bucks County. Um, they did 
four or five cores in the oldest core, and this is supposed to be something built by colonial farmers down there. Uh, 3000 BC was one core, and they ranged all the way from 3000 BC, almost 5,000 years ago, up to about 500 AD. Okay, so which, you, you mentioned there's a layering of cultures. Uh, yeah. Obviously. So yeah. who do you think did the original engineering of uh, mm. the chambers mm. and the serpentine walls? Right, that's a great question because we're still waiting for results of the optically stimulated luminescence. They actually did test the uh, 2,550 foot serpent wall and we'll, the results are supposed to come out this summer. Um, we have some preliminary results and the results are uh, before the time of Columbus, which is good. It, it, you know, so the Patty family couldn't have built it. It was there before the colonial settlement. But the carbon datings range from um, uh, about eight, uh, 16, uh, 15 something BC, uh, AD, excuse me, all the way back to 4,000 years on the main site, up near the North Stone, which is about 500 feet north of the main site. It's outside that area. We have a fire pit that was dated in 1995. I think Woods Hole Oceanographic did that one. It was 7,400 years old. It shows some human activity on the site during the middle archaic time period, they call it. Um, and we also believe that the original astronomical center was actually to the west, about 200 feet from where it is presently. We think it evolved like Stonehenge uh, was stage one, two, three ABC over 1500 years. It looks like we had an original astronomical center. It was on a glacial erratic or glacial boulder. And we have the actual survey and all the lines going out from that. And we believe that was the original center. Somebody at a little bit later date actually set it up near the main site, about 200 feet to the east. And that's where we have an astronomical viewing platform today. So who were the people is a great question. We know Native Americans were in New Hampshire going back as early as 13,000 years. Uh, Keene, New Hampshire, they just found a site that goes back to that time period. And that's pretty amazing. Um, but it seemed to be a layering of cultures because of the carbon datings and also because of the uh, astronomical alignments. The Earth's tilt very slowly changes the obligity. It's a 41,000 year cycle. And then you have the other cycle, the wobble, which is 20, uh, is the precession of the equinoxes, is about 25,920 years. So we had a doctor from Penn State looking at some of the 24 star alignments that the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, uh, when they did our analysis in 1978, they took our five years worth of survey. Beverly Pearson Associates of Dear New Hampshire was hired in 73 to survey the alignments and walls. And they did it as we could pay. So it took them five years to do it because of funding, you know? And then that fed into a computer at the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in Cambridge, Massachusetts. 78, they came back and said, your alignments, if they were used for that purpose, would work about 1800 BC due to the Earth's tilt, plus or minus about 250 years. That agreed with that 4,000 year old carbon dating taken in 1971 uh, on the north wall of the chamber. So we have two dates that kind of agree, one astronomical and one carbon 14 date. And they said, you have 24 star alignments. And we knew we had a true north alignment and 4,000, a little over 4,000 years ago, the pole star was not Polaris, it was Thuban. And Thuban is one of the stars in Draco, the constellation. So in the course of the evening, you see that star not move, but Draco, that serpent body would kind of spin around it. You know, it's kind of something significant. Um, and what so- the point of the, the, Why were they star watching? What were they trying to track? 
Well, I think, um, you know, a lot of ancient, no matter where you go and you put ancient sites, they seem to uh, be aligned with perhaps the solstices, you know, longest and shortest day of the year, sometimes the equinoxes, you know, what we call the mid-year alignment. And um, for instance, the Celts even divided the year into eight parts. They had uh, November 1st, August 1st, February 1st, and May 1st, what we call um, mid-season or cross-quarter days. And uh, some of these days we still celebrate today. You know, All Saints Day is around November 1st. That's Samhain or Samhain by the Celts. And then uh, February 1st was the uh, end of winter, beginning of spring. We have Groundhog's Day and Candlemas today, but it was called Imbolc by the, Imbolc by the uh, Celts. And May Day is Beltane. The fires of Beltane by the Celts. And May Day, we used to have Maypoles and Mayfairs, and that's the beginning of summer. When you get to June 20th, the 21st, you have your midsummer solstice. I think the early cultures, they wanted to track uh, migrations of animals if you're a hunter-gatherers. And then as they got into agriculture, it was important to know when to plant the seed and when to harvest. You know, you plant too right. early, it could freeze. If you plant too late, it won't, you know, so it mature. A it was a big a big clock. Now, you mentioned the Celts. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Um, is I mean, is there any evidence mm-hmm. on uh, or at American Stonehenge for... Um, early European peoples before, you know, Columbus uh, using this site? There are inscriptions, yeah. And Dr. Barry fell from Harvard University. He was from New Zealand originally, went to Edinburgh and got his degree. He was an invertebrate museum zoologist at Harvard University. He was down there for a couple decades. Uh, In the mid-70s, he visited the site, and he became an epigrapher, a study of ancient, you know, script. And I think he could uh, read something like 15 ancient languages and could speak six modern or seven modern languages. He was a very, very intelligent gentleman. Not everybody agreed with him, of course, but uh, the markings found on our site starting in the 60s. Uh, he came in 75. So back in the late 60s, we were finding in the chamber and ruins again, we found three different scripts. He looked at those. These stones had markings on them. He actually brought some of the stones back to his home in Arlington, Massachusetts. And he uh, studied them and he said, well, one of them's Iberian Punic. Another one is Celtic or Celtic Ogham or Oham. And the other one was Libyan. And he came to a conclusion after some years that the uh, Iberian Peninsula, Spain and Portugal was actually a melting pot of cultures. We know the Celts were in there. We know the Phoenicians got in there. You know, the Carthaginians were part of the Phoenician culture, you know, and they were in there, Cothco Nova in a town called Gades. And I've been in Spain, you know, I didn't quite get, I got, I was on the su- southern coast of Spain. I don't think we got quite got in. It's called Cadiz or Gades. That was a Phoenician port. And the, and the Libyans from Libya actually were in there too. And it was like, they were multilingual. And he felt that they stepped off of the Iberian Peninsula on the way to the new world, like Columbus did much, much later. But the markings go from Manana Island up in Maine near Monhegan Island. We were up there two years ago trying to get to Manana Island to see some of the things he was talking about in the 1970s. Because of COVID, they didn't have any way to get over to this little island. You know, we, we could either swim across this channel or you couldn't go over there. So I never did make it over there. I wanted to go there since the 70s. But from Maine, all the way down to Brazil, all the way out to the West Coast, to find these mockings. And then the question comes up, are these, are these hoaxes, frauds, fakes, misinterpretations? Are we looking at ancient script? by people coming over from the old world, the Mediterranean, Africa, and Western Europe to the new world before the Vikings. And before the Vikings, if you ever read a book by Farley Morwet, uh, he's from Canada, a really great writer. He Farley wrote, Mowat, uh, yes, oh yes, yeah. he's a national treasure. Oh, he is, you know, and I, I didn't read West Viking, I still have to read that in 1965, but 
20 years ago, his book, Firefighters, came out, and I read it then, and I just finished reading it a couple of weeks ago, and I got so much more out of it. Before the Vikings came over, by hundreds of years, people were already going to Iceland, over to Greenland, and they had names like Cronus for Greenland and Tilly for Iceland, and they were coming into the Baffin Islands, coming down into Newfoundland, and these go back before the Vikings by hundreds of years, and they're coming out of the, um, the Hebrides, the Orkneys, the Shetlands, going into the Faroes, and then over to Greenland and then in, uh, into Iceland, excuse me, then Greenland and into Canada. And they were doing that way before the Vikings came over, you know? If you read his book, it's just, and he's, he's so careful in what he writes. We also, a book similar to that, 1961 by um, Jeffrey Ash from England, the great author, historian, and novelist. He wrote a book called Land to the West in 1961. And I finally got a copy after all these decades. I saw a picture of him standing next to our sacrificial table in 61. And I saw it, and I got friends that live in England. They go, he was there at your place. I go, I know, I never, didn't know that. I've heard the name, I know he's famous. He writes a book very similar to Farley Moore, the same kind of you know, early cultures coming across the North Atlantic, going way back. And all these stone beacons were up in the Baffin Islands. They look like uh, cairns, but they were different heights. And what they were is like for mariners, and ancient mariners would have a map and they could identify where they were because of the size of these cons that were next to each other, maybe two or three cons of different heights. And they're still up there today. Some have been ruined. Some are still up there. And nobody knows who built them. The Inuit said, we didn't do that. And other, you know, and I think there was some other people that were there early, like the uh, Beothucks, you know, and they died out around 1820s. But they were like, we didn't do that. Mm. So somebody did it way, way back, you know, before the Vikings building these things come right. and they were. They were ahead of the Vikings, you know, and they were actually afraid of the Vikings too, you know. Got to ask you about the sacrificial table. You just <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's a big stone. It's about nine thousand pounds. The granite weighs about one hundred sixty-three pounds per cubic foot, and it's a bell shape. And what we're finding using, we've been using lidar, and we've been using ground penetration radar. But the ground, the lidar is a handheld unit, fifty thousand dollar, can see down to one centimeter. And when we started looking at some of the features, including the table. And we can use the LIDAR. We LIDAR'd 15 acres, and it took the gentleman 600 hours to process the data. And when you look at the site and you look at the table, the table had that groove on it, a big, looks like a rectangular groove. And the table is about nine feet by six feet, bell-shaped, sits up on four legs right next to what we call the oracle chamber. And the groove is actually not a rectangle. It's a trapezoid. And when we started looking at LIDAR two years ago, when he, this gentleman from Connecticut came up and spent a lot of time walking around with his brand new unit made in Florida, and then he used software out of Montreal and processed the data, all the floor plans, besides the groove on the table, the floor plans are the chamber and ruins I've mentioned, the paddy chamber, which is not built by the paddy family, it's an, a stone roof structure, the courtyard where the paddy house sat, and a little niche next to the table we call the animal pen, they're all trapezoid and floor plan. We never knew that before. But the LIDAR, you can see down to a centimeter. You can look at it and you're like, oh, my God. Uh, it's a new discovery to us that these floor plans were all laid out trapezoid. It's something that ancient people built, even in England and some of the megalithic sites. You can see it in Peru and some of the windows and doors, too. The Paddy family building this would have used probably 90-degree corners, you know, rectangles and squares, that kind of thing. And we're looking at a standard unit of measure, too. So the groove on the table... It does not conform to any English measurements. That's and the megalithic he, yard? Yeah, you got it. <laughs> Let me uh, pick up on the, uh, a point about the sacrificial table. You mentioned the grooves in it. Um, is it. Was that to like drain? If it was a sacrificial table, were the grooves like to facilitate the drainage of the blood? 
Uh, very possibly. That's right. Um, we have put water into it. Or when it rains, the water goes into the groove and it does go towards the, uh, it actually goes in the direction opposite the chamber and ruins. I'm sorry, the Oracle chamber, excuse me. The table is orientated east and west and it actually goes into a little runnel at the end of the table. It runs off and right below that little runnel, there's a cutout in the bedrock where water goes into today. If it was some other fluid, perhaps blood or something, it would actually go into that too. And the little cutout actually could accommodate even like a clay vessel or a stone vessel perhaps to collect, you know, whatever it is. But it will go into that cutout and it just sits in that cutout. Um, and again, it's a bell shape. And the runnel's kind of not in the center, but it's off to the right side as you're looking towards the table. And the table, again, about nine feet by six feet. Um, so the channel is very deep. Some people suggest that the table was a lye stone for making soap. They're usually something you can carry. There may be uh, 36, 40 inches across, maybe an inch, inch and a half. And I could pick one up. I've seen at the county stores and museums, you know. And this thing's much, much lighter. It's about 9,000 pounds. And um, it does sit on four stone legs. Mr. Goodwin, when he first fo photographed it, uh, was actually Malcolm Pearson, but the table was buried to the very top. It looked like it was sitting on the ground. And as his crew cleaned the site and they got to the table and started cleaning and digging, they found four stone legs were supporting the table. And the table, the east end of it, touches the oracle chamber. And below that is the oracle tube, a six foot tube that goes into the oracle chamber. And when you're inside the oracle chamber, uh, they carved out part of the bedrock. They quarried it. They use it properly for building material and to lower the floor slightly. They left a step right underneath that speaking tube. And if you're standing there about five and a half, I'm almost five, eight, and I can stand there and I can talk right into the tube. And the voice comes out underneath the table, almost like an oracle or a spirit was talking to you. Opposite the, um, on the other side on the west is a ramp. And if you're standing on the ramp, looking down at the table, all you hear is a voice coming out. It sounds, again, like maybe a spirit or something talking. I've been to Malta. We were there in the 1997, and I saw holes in the wall at some of the ancient, magnificent chambers they have there. And I asked one of the guides what they were for, and they said uh, they were for an oracle to speak through, like a priest or somebody would speak through that, and a voice would come through the hole, and people would hear it on the other side. And I said, we got something like that in North Salem, New Hampshire. So... When Goodwin first saw the speaking tube, it had two plugs of stone concealing it. And one of his workers actually moved the stone and the whole plug came out. And there's this hole six feet long that goes into the oracle chamber. And they got on the other side of it, of course, and they found the other plug. So it was actually sealed up. And it looked like they, whoever closed the site down, not only did that, but there's a network of 12 underground storm drains and they have plugs of stone in them too. It's almost like they winterized the place and they took off. So. Uh, the Oracle Chamber is very sophisticated. It's uh, the biggest structure still on the site. You can stand up. Somebody six foot five could just about walk in it. They might touch their head on the ceiling, but uh, it runs north and south, true, like most of the chambers do. Um, it has five stone niches or closets, really beautiful stone closets inside. It has about an eight foot, what we call a bed. It's right underneath the speaking tube we would stand the talk by a niche, if you look in, there's a bed and it actually has a stone window in it too, looking into the chamber. It has a fireplace and until 1958, when we opened, there were two stone louvers that would adjust the draft. We have the photographs taken by Malcolm Pearson, my dad and others, and somebody stole them, unfortunately. So we don't have those stone louvers anymore. There's two carvings in there. There's a deer carving 
It actually looks like an ibex, like a like an Iberian ibex. The antlers on it do not look like a deer, but we still call it the deer carving. That was found by Mr. Goodwin. And there's an arrow carving found by one of our guides back in 1967 okay, on the ceiling. The, the sacrificial table for a minute. Uh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. If it, it, is it large enough to hold a, a human body? I mean, is it possible yeah. that whatever culture built this thing was engaged in, in human sacrifice? It is possible that it is a sacrificial table. We said it's possibly sacrificial, ceremonial, uh, you know, an embalming table, a birthing table. Um, a person that's uh, some, a per, it would accommodate up to about an eight foot tall person. Um, in fact, there's an anaglyph at one of these sites. I mentioned about 800 sites from Quebec all the way down to New Jersey. One of the sites in Shutesbury, Massachusetts has stone chambers. That's about 75 miles west, southwest of our site in Massachusetts. And some farmer un turned a stone over back at some date. I don't remember the date. But in the 60s, my dad saw it. You know, he was out looking at all these. It looks like a raised carving or an anaglyph, and it looks exactly like the outline of our table, a bell shape. It has by in the. It looks like a person lying on their back with their legs spread, and by on their back, and the left leg is where that runnel is, and right below that, there's a circle like the lip of a vase on this anaglyph. Around the neck, there seems to be something around the neck, and I think one of the cultures. I can't remember if it's the Phoenicians. They usually did babies, but uh, maybe it was a Celts. They actually put like a, a cord around the neck of the sacrificial victim. But it looks like a person spread out on the table. If it was, this person must have been like eight feet tall because they cover most of this table. But it looks just like the shape of our sacrificial table. And when you look, it became the, the uh, logo for the New England Antiquities Research Association. So if you Google nira.org, you'll see the logo come up. And that is from that anaglyph. And it looks like our table, you know, my dad uh, started that group in 64 and adopted that particular uh, stone what, anaglyph. What know? culture would be huh. have been engaged in human sacrifice? I mean, I, I know the yeah. the Aztecs down in yes. Central and South America. Um, yeah. Yeah. Maybe the, you know, if you're going into uh, the ancient world, maybe what, the Canaanites? Yeah, the Phoenician Canaanites, exactly. They did. And they did, um, I think they did babies sometimes too. And I think they did some adults, but um, it's in the Bible too, about, you know, sacrificing um, and the worship of Baal or Baal. Yes, yes. In the, in the Celts, they worship Bel. Um, and there's a number of other cultures, even in the Southwest, uh, what they used to call the Anazazi um, in the Hohokamangium. Um, there's some evidence of sacrifice. We were just out there two years ago, as a matter of fact, that, Coven Weep and Chaco Canyon, Mesa Verde and Canyon of the Ancients, uh, possibly even, and it's kind of kind of um, a sensitive area, I guess. Yeah. There seems to be some signs of cannibalism too, and it's from some of the, uh, I, there's a lot of evidence suggesting that not only in the bones they find with the teeth marks, but also in their excrement, they can find certain proteins um, that show that and it's really strange, you know, I mean, I read that and I'm like, wow, you know, so maybe that was sacrifice and that cannibalism, I'm not sure. But yes, different cultures did do that. Um, uh, any bones, you know, found, on, any bones found on the site, bones at American Stonehenge? Oh, great question. Yes, uh, Goodwin found some bones in the main site. Uh, bones usually dissolve within a couple hundred years because of the acidity in, of the soil in our area. But some bones do survive. I get the New Hampshire Archaeological Society, my dad was a member, my uncle was a vice president. 
I get their publications, sometimes going back a few thousand years, depending on the, maybe in clay, maybe in, you know, peat or something like that, it preserves them. But yes, Goodwin found some bones. They were, um, they were found in the middle of the site, 1968, 38, 30 years later, they were sent to the Smithsonian by a woman from a local high school um, in Plastown, New Hampshire. We have her name too, I can't think of her name. She brought it to the Smithsonian, and Dr. Lucy Huygen, a physical anthropologist, looked at a couple of different bones that she brought from our site. And three of them she identified as what she thought were human. And she said they're denser bone material than I would expect. But, and she went on to explain a couple of things about that. And there were some mockings on the bone too that were done while the person was still alive. So that brings up a couple of questions. Where did these, you know, what happened? How did the bones get mocked while somebody's alive? Um, and then at the end, she puts down her personal feeling. She goes, my personal feeling or thought, I guess, is that these are human bones. But there were some issues, like she said, they were denser than she thought they should be in all of this. Then she had a couple other bones from the watch house, which is, we think, part of the, uh, one of the biggest serpent walls we have. The watch house had some bones found in it too. One was a pendant with a drill hole. The other was a piece of stone, actually, triangular shape that was a pendant found in that chamber. But a couple other bones were found. She identified them as bison bison or buffalo. And then she showed them to a colleague that was more of an expert on those animals. And he said, yes, uh, I would agree. Those are bison. She goes, yeah, but they're from New Hampshire. And he goes, well, if you go back early enough time, there were bison there. I think they were called the wood bison. Yes. So they were bison, you know, so we had bison. And there were a couple of other teeth that could be something to do with the wild pig, although I didn't think they had those back then, you know. I thought the Spanish brought them over, but I'm not 100% sure about that. That was my understanding, but, yeah. Yeah. And then, so these bones were out of the ground too long to be radiocarbon dating. You have to take, and in the 30s, radiocarbon dating it was until 1949 with Dr. Libby, 1950. But um, you'd have to put them in like aluminum foil or you have to protect them. You know, once you get them out of the ground, protect them immediately. These were exposed to the elements for 30 years. But I have a friend out in Malibu and uh, a great guy. He does a lot of stuff in South America with the Paraca skulls. And he has a company up in Canada, I think not too far from you, that does DNA. He, I had a picture of the building, as a matter of fact. I used to fly to Toronto all the time for American when I was working there, too. But there's a company up there and they do. I'm sure there's others, too. But he uses that laboratory. And he was thinking of maybe we could actually have DNA looked at on these three bones that might be human, you know. Carbon dating would be out of the question now, but maybe DNA would work. So, you know, that's something we may do down the road. You know, they're in, they're right in our display case. People can see them every day, you know. So that's a possibility. How many uh, how many visitors are you getting to America's Stonehenge every year? Uh, I think, well, you know, if you don't get like Stonehenge, you get about a million. We get about 30,000, uh, maybe up to 35,000 on a good year. And everything's been up and down now because of COVID, but probably around that, you know. And we're going to have a 65th anniversary next year. Um, from when we opened and we were made a state historic site in 1971. So that was 51 years ago. So, yeah. So, and it's slowly increasing. I think uh, shows like yours really help make people aware of these sites, you know? Um, and we are thankful for that, you know, cause my dad said, well, well-kept secret, but that's not our intention, you know? Right. So um, do we don't get think, the right What do you think Stonehenge, America's Stonehenge uh, reveals about America's history? Well, I think there was an ancient group of stone builders, and we used to think it was just in New England. And, now, and then we found out the Hudson Valley has over 500 of these in Dutchess, Westchester, Putnam County. They go right into Pennsylvania. And now we're finding similar kind of stone features, you know, 
uh, walls shaped like the letter D. They're in Colorado, serpentine walls in Colorado, cairns, standing stone, chambered cairns like we have in New England, in Colorado. And then we found some of the features go all the way out to California. So actually it's added to the confusion, I think, rather than you know, answering the question of you know, who these people were. Um, our, one of our researchers, Dr. David Stewart Smith, he was with us for almost 40 years and he passed away with cancer just as we were finding the serpentine walls in 2016. His thought after all these years is does ancient lithic culture, stone building culture in the Northeast that's been kind of unrecognized, not accepted, sometimes ridiculed, you know, like all well, these structures are built by farmers, there's no ancient culture stone builders. And that's causing damage to some of these because people are still constructing things, which we need to do, you know, building roads and, and putting houses in. But if, if these things were looked at by the mainstream a little bit closer, I think, I think they're missing the whole boat, you know. Brown University and Yale and uh, right down near North Stonington, Connecticut, where there's 8,000 of these features, over 35,000 acres in the town of North Stonington, Connecticut, with 400 serpent walls, 25 stone chambers like we have, and then all these cairns and all these other kind of features that we have at our site spread out all over that one town. And then down the road is Gunjiwamp, a 200 acre site. And these universities, you know, they go overseas, which is wonderful. Um, some have even ridiculed and said, you know, people should stop paying attention to these ancient stone structures and, and actually work on legitimate sites. I mean, that's almost, pretty it's almost Dennis, like they don't want the truth to yeah. get out at, because it will yeah. totally upend the apple cart in terms of the, the true nature of America's, uh, pre-Columbian past. I think you hit the nail on the head, you know? The Powell Doctrine, you know, John Wesley Powell, back in the 1800s, he was at the Smithsonian, and he basically said, if you find any old world um, artifacts or, you know, st structures or whatever that are, um, you know, that are before Columbus, you have to disavow them. And his right-hand man, I think, was Cyrus Thompson, I think, and he basically let the cat out of the bag. So we found so many mounds you know some of the million mounds out west that have artifacts that seem to be old world pre-columbian that we can't list them all <laughs> i think he kind of spilled the beans on that but John, it's called the powell doctrine big doc doctrine that basically you're not supposed to have any old world visitors here before columbus and samuel Ellert morrison from the harvard university the great naval historian wrote ocean admiral of the ocean sea the european discovery of america he died, I think, in 76, but he said there's no explorers before Columbus. Now, Native Americans may have had a big part in a site. That's the question. You know, they weren't known to do stone constructions in the Northeast. That may be incorrect, you know. Um, but if they were Old World, uh, you get Samuel L. Morrison, you know, and the Viking site, Lonzo Meadow, was found in Newfoundland back in 1960. They identified it. Um, and he died 16 years after that. And he said, basically, it's still insignificant, you know? It's like, mm -hmm. well, that does show that people came here before Columbus, you know? Don't believe in the lying eyes. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. In the meantime, <laughs> uh, well, we've got the uh, some nice, nice uh, weather ahead of us for some road trips. So we encourage everyone to give us the, uh, the exact location. If we were traveling... Um, let's say f from southwestern Ontario or upstate New York, how would we find Stonehenge, USA? Yeah, I guess Route 90 might. My wife lives in Syracuse. I think Route 90 would get you out here. And uh, once you get into the Boston area, you'll be going um, on Route 93. Eventually, we're 40 miles north of Boston, right in southern New Hampshire. We're exit three off of Route 93. 
And our website is uh, stonehengeusa.com. You can find our email address and we can answer questions. We have a phone number. And on that website, we have a uh, 12 minute video. You can watch it. It's the one we show in our theater. A lot of people watch it before they come now, but you can see it in our theater. We have a free app download on that. If you down, download the app, you can do a complete virtual tour of our site um, from your lazy boy or couch at home without ever coming, it's free. And people that can't get here from another part of the world, they can do a complete tour of our site. But if you use it when you come with your smartphone, you can actually walk around and it will talk to your pictures and text as you're walking. And then we have a four page map in case your battery dies on your phone. But um, yeah, we're right in Southern New Hampshire, about an hour north of Boston. So when you find Boston, you know, it's just a short hop and, you know, skipping a drive right up to our place. We're open all year round. We do snowshoeing open 110 acres uh, during the winter. You get to see the entire property. Right now we open about 15 acres during the normal season. So winter, you can see everything, you know, which is kind of good. <laughs> Stonehenge, Dennis Stone. Thank you so much. Great to talk to you again. Uh, so nice to have, talk to you again, Richard. Thank you again and your listeners. Have a great week. Thank you. A new Richard Sarrett's Strange Planet drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Subscribe at strangeplanetpodcast.com.